0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading.
1: Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite life experiences. Whether you're uh, documenting a vacation or you're sharing your favorite bars and restaurants or you're sharing your city's essential museums and monuments with your friends, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can follow your friends. It's social. You can follow your family. You can follow your favorite writers, actors, artists, musicians, chefs, whomever. And then when you build your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram and Facebook, locations from Google Maps, and then you use tags and text to tell a story. Uh, From there, you share your curations via social media Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Google. Sweet Spot wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. Sweet Spot for iPhone. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
0: You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
2: Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing
1: what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Oh, right. All right, right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is delivered twice weekly. This is attempting to insinuate itself into your life. Uh, hello, I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing well, wherever you are. Uh, Frederick Barthelme is my guest today. Very pleased to have him here. It's a great thrill to have him here. Uh, his latest novel is called There Must Be Some Mistake. It's available from Little Brown, and you're going to hear us in conversation shortly. Uh, first, though, I do want to read some mail. Uh, I've been getting some good mail. Figured I would uh, give it some airtime. This letter comes from a listener named David. ...who says, Hi Brad, I've really been enjoying the podcast. I'm currently teaching high school and listening. Helps me to cut down my angst when it's time to process the high piles of various bullshit I have to work through. Uh, I'm writing because I was interested to hear your discussion with Sarah Gerard that veered toward the end... ...toward animal rights stuff. Like Sarah, I read the meat racket this year and what disturbed me... uh, ...just as much about it as the chickens with their feet falling off material that Sarah described was the utter sense of hopelessness that the writer, Christopher Leonard, seemed to portray about this. His research led him to the conclusion, on one hand, that the only way to fix some of the economic problems that operators like Tyson Foods had put in place was for everyone to turn vegetarian. But his pragmatism, on the other hand, led him to simply shrug and admit that this mass conversion probably wouldn't come anytime soon. I don't know what to think about this. I, too, spend most of my time shrugging, It's hard enough to get along with people without giving them an extra reason to think you're weak or insane, which, let's face it, is the knee-jerk reaction you're likely to get if you, quote, preach about this. I'm doubly conflicted because, like you, I grew up around farmers in Iowa, not Indiana, but Iowa is no less into that sort of thing. Whenever people get all Paul McCartney, quote, if all slaughterhouses had glass walls on me, it bugs me. Because the most rapidly pro-meat people I know are those who probably unsurprisingly raise and or slaughter animals for a living. My own depressive feeling about this is that people won't turn away from meat eating on a large scale until it's forced upon them. Either by economics, something-something climate change, and crop prices increase, or by forced food policies by a, quote, government elite, which is hard to picture in the United States, but has some precedent in, say, Mao's China. Looking back, one can reflect on the suffering on all sides that both slavery and its abolition caused for the American South, and it's hard not to think that an abolition of animal agriculture would be a real disaster in a rough economic parallel for the American Midwest. Whenever I visit my parents back there, I now live in Arizona, it's hard for me not to find my vegetarian eating habits faintly ridiculous. Add to that the sentimental feeling for food that people have that you discussed, and yeah... Yeesh, it can get you down. Uh, Well, I'm not building to any grand thesis here. I just thought I'd let you know that I've been enjoying your show and that I appreciated your and Sarah's comments on this in episode 325. Maybe we'll just have to keep on failing nobly. Regards, David. Thanks, David. Uh, That's a good letter. I appreciate it. And I know this food stuff is touchy, and it's not exactly... uh, Germain to uh, a show about writing and literature but it does come up everybody eats people think about what they eat or most people do and i'm not so sure about the uh, economy of the midwest going down the tubes if animal agriculture were reduced uh, because they have all that land that they're grazing those cattle on they could easily grow grains there if the demand were up and feed a lot more people with that acreage like you know one one acre of land used to grow grain feeds a lot more people than one acre of land used to feed cows that's true so it's hard to talk about and like you say you don't want to come off as preachy people are very emotional about food very emotional and get very angry when you start talking about what should and should not be eaten and what's good and what's not good i hate those conversations but i do think there are some people out there who are uh even in their temperament and in their delivery, who are effective at um, transmitting facts. So it's like that. Let's take emotion out of it. Let's take preference out of it. Let's just look at the facts. This is fa- You know, the meat industry is factually bad for the environment, and it's a really inefficient use of land. It's an inefficient way to feed uh, a world population that's growing to uh you know uh, a level that is that brings to uh brings into question whether or not uh, life on the planet is even sustainable when you start getting up towards 10 billion people on the planet how do you feed everybody there's a reason why there's like this faux meat thing like laboratory grown meat they're starting to do that i think people are anticipating like oh shit we might run out of land to graze all these animals or the inv- you know the global climate might uh become so difficult that we can't sustain it etc so uh, you know there are facts people should be aware of them people should think about this stuff on their own me I think you just do your thing do what you think is right lead by example hope for the best like it's hard for me to think you know if you fast forward say 500 years into the future if human beings are still around that people won't look back on the way we treat animals now uh, with the same sort of uh, disbelief that we look back on, say, like medieval times and how they tortured people and like quartered them in public or whatever. It's very cruel. It's fucked up. It, It reflects poorly on us as a species, I think. But, you know, just my opinion. And it should also be said, you know, the, how we consume is at the heart of what's, what ills the planet. You know? People are greedy. They want what they want. They want it. It's good because they like it. So the best way, like the best, I think, political statement you can make about it is just to, con- to consume in a way Uh, that's as conscious as possible but it's hard you know you can't be perfect I still drive a car I drink alcohol alcohol also uh, eats up a lot of uh, land that could otherwise be used to grow grains that actually nourish people sustain life not that you know a little wine (laughs) can't be good you know uh, in that capacity too but you know what I'm saying I run my air conditioner it's not like I'm some sort of saint so you pick your battles you do the best you can it's tough That's where I'm at with it. And, you know, I should also say, uh, speaking of this sort of thing, that today is election day. I'm not voting. First time in my adult life, I'm missing an election. Just hasn't even occurred to me. I think I'm in some sort of funk. I might be feeling uh, uniquely apathetic. I I wonder if this is a phase or if this is some sort of permanent shift. I've been thinking about George Carlin a lot. He didn't vote. He had funny things to say about this. He was really dark at the end of his life about this. Is that where I'm headed? Is that where I am? He would say, you know, don't blame the politicians. Everybody wants to talk about how the politicians suck. Well, the politicians come from us. They're Americans. They come from American families and American people and American schools. And, uh, they're the best we can do. We're sending them to Washington to fuck shit up. (laughs) So, you know, if you participate, you're complicit in that. And if you don't participate, then you have a right to complain. That's sort of where I'm at. The system is broken until the system is fixed until people get better. But I guess that kind of paints... like. See, when you say something like that, I think it sort of Im- implies that you think of yourself as better than the electorate. I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with that. I don't want to be arrogant. I'm really just tired. And I live in California, where it doesn't feel like so much is at stake. If I were in a swing state, if there were a Senate race that was particularly contentious and could potentially swing things, maybe. I would be you know, more tuned in. But... I'm not. I'm not. I got enough to, to worry about. So, I hope I haven't depressed you. Is that depressing? <laughs> um, the good news is that we have Frederick Barthelme here, so hopefully that'll lift your spirits. Uh, like I said, a great thrill, great honor to have him here. His latest novel is called There Must Be Some Mistake. It's out there now from Little Brown. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Frederick Barthelme. And his new book once more is called there must be some mistake.
2: Yeah, I was born in Houston and lived there until, uh, sometime I moved to New York. And, uh, when I was about 22, lived there for five or you know, seven years. And then I moved back to Houston for a while. Um, uh, then I went to Baltimore for a while where I was studying at Hopkins and, uh, then I came to uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where I stayed for <laughs> 30 years.
1: <laughs> did you intend? Did you intend? Was that something oh. that you? know? No. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> In fact, no. <laughs> I intended not to stay there for 30 years. I intended to stay there for a year or so, uh, but that turned into 30 years.
1: I, I want to talk about your family because. Mm-hmm. I, I've had uh, conversations with writers on this program who, uh, b- believe it or not, there are, there are multiple conversations I've had with writers who come from families that produce like clusters of fiction writers or clusters of, of of authors at least. You know, some of them might write nonfiction, some of them might write fiction. But I always find that interesting, and I'm sort of surprised that I've talked to multiple people who come from such families because it seems like such an anomaly to me that one family would produce. Uh, multiple children who who do this <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so how did it happen? How did it happen in your family and and do you have any ideas on that? Yeah,
2: I think that there are a couple of things. Both of my parents were uh, extremely literate. My mother was English major at Penn, and my father was a was an architect, but very well uh, read and uh, The thing that was prized most in the family was quickness of wit. <laughs> So people were, you know, we spent all of our time, you know, cutting each other up for, you know, days on end at every occasion at the dinner table, watching television, riding in the car. Uh, it was a constant sort of verbal uh, play. And um, I think that that's where you find the source of, uh, of all the writers. In fact, everybody in the family, all the five children, um, made their livings in one way or another writing.
1: Wow. And how, so, okay, so five children, uh, how many boys and how many girls?
2: There were four boys and one girl, if I remember correctly. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> uh, and your parents encouraged this, obviously. And your father being an architect, uh, you know, that's a, you know, obviously that's a little bit different than uh, the fine arts, but there's definitely a fine art aspect to architecture oh, yeah. and design. Yeah. And, I, and I always find, too, that like, There's something to be said about having um, an architectural approach to the novel, you know, because they're they're not dissimilar, you know. And a a, a well-structured novel or a well-built book feels in some way similar to a a well-built structure or building.
2: Yeah, your building is the central sort of idea uh, in in both cases. Um, And, you know, he was a very aggressive uh, modernist uh, and uh, as a consequence of which, you know, that we were, uh, the whole life of the family was sort of modernism. Uh, he built a house in, uh, I think it was 39 or thereabouts, which we lived in until uh, our we re- reached, uh, you know, our moving away period. Uh, it was a very modern house and well known in Houston at the time. Since been torn down, of course. Oh, really? Uh, you know, for. For some nice condos, okay. <laughs> <laughs> some pretty condos they were building.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, wait, Like, what did the how What was the house like when you say modern? Just because I think maybe some listeners might not know exactly uh, what was, that means.
2: It was sort of uh, Corbusier out of Mies uh, a big central room that had like ten foot ceilings and was, I don't know what, uh, twenty two by thirty five. That would be the living room, dining room. Uh, some auxiliary space uh, on one end, a uh, spiral staircase going up to a single room upstairs, and then bedrooms slung off of this space, uh, in various ways, uh, on both ends of the house, one for the parents and the children at the other end of the house.
1: And so why was it, and it was just torn down because somebody, some developer decided they wanted to plan a bunch of condos there? Yeah. Uh, that's a bummer. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, at a certain point that happens. It was, uh, you know, it was on all the sort of Houston registers for houses, but for, you know, architecturally significant houses, but that doesn't really count in Houston. (laughs) (laughs) Houston is more about, you know, tear it down.
1: Tear it down, yeah. Put in some, like you gotta get, you gotta squeeze more money out of that, uh, out of those a, that acreage, you know. Progress, progress. Ugh. So okay, so you're raised uh, by an architect. Do you find that, like, w- w- were there things that uh, he taught you that later filtered into your work? Like, were you getting an aesthetic education from him in a way that felt really explicit, or was it more that one of those things where you just sort of picked it up by osmosis, uh, accidentally along the way? No,
2: absolutely. The, the whole process was learning <laughs> from one time you could walk, <laughs> you know, I mean, we were all uh, involved in one way or another in, in his life, the buildings he was designing, the uh, charrettes he would be involved in or the competitions he would be involved in. Uh, and in working around the house, uh, you know, like he decided we needed to, uh, Convert the driveway to shell, so we all <laughs> spent hours and hours shoveling you know, oyster shells into the parking lot because that was at some point this is in the fifties sometime that was uh that was something we needed to do
1: well so yeah well, and yeah, it sounds like he was kind of like restless in terms of his uh projects, like he was tinkering a lot yes yeah,
2: so the house was constantly under redevelopment. Uh, from the time it was built in '39 to, you know, I guess, I mean, he spent the last, um, I don't know what, four or five years that he had the house drawing and redrawing and redrawing endlessly uh, new um, designs for the front of the house, uh, thinking that he was going to, at that late stage, uh, redevelop it. And, you know, could never find anything satisfactory. The, the failure to find something satisfactory was the key to this entire operation,
1: I think. So, okay, but it, I mean, it sounds like it was kind of a laboratory for him, but was it also sort of a, a repository for kind of a, a restless spirit, you know? Was it? Was sure. Both? Absolutely.
2: Yes, yes. Of course. I mean, the, the kids, you know, all, all of those aspects of, of the life we lived in that house uh, were, were sort of taken and internalized by all the children in various ways.
1: And you were raised Catholic? Yes. Okay.
2: I say that because he was not Catholic. My mother was. Uh, I mean, he was Catholic, but he was not practicing, I guess. My mother was practicing. We were practicing Catholics until we escaped.
1: Until you, as was I. But, you know, you were educated in Catholic schools. I mean, did yes. it, did, that, did that have an impact on you?
2: Uh, only to, to uh, a, a dissatisfaction with khakis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the uniform. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Uh Was it a co-ed the situation, or were you in an all-boys school? Uh, co-ed. Okay. Well, at least you had some girls around.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a big problem in Catholic school for a while, and and uh, one of the anecdotes is that, and, and some of this I sort of remember and some I don't, a teacher... Threw something at me, and I threw it back at her. <laughs> and then I went to school in the in the uh, nuns. Uh, what do you call it? It's not a rectory for nuns. Whatever it's called, the nunnery. Uh, yeah, the nuns ran the school, so I had to go to school in the nuns' uh, uh, housing area for six weeks alone.
1: <laughs> wow, it's like solitary.
2: I, yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, the teacher said that I made various remarks that I don't recall making, but um, other people believed the teachers. And so I, so I went to school for six weeks, day in, day out, and the convent, there it is, it came back to me, convent.
1: There it is, There's yeah, that's, that's right. So was there a competition among you and your siblings growing up? I mean, I know you guys were engaged in kind of a battle of wits, which seems healthy and, and normal, but... Uh, especially as you get on in life and, um, you know, your brother uh, Donald's publishing and having a lot of success and, you know, you're trying to do it and other siblings are trying to do it. Like how did that uh, dynamic take shape and how did it affect you?
2: I, uh, what I'd ha- say about that is that there wasn't a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of competition in the same way that we had grown up with a competitive sort of shooting each other with language constantly, but there wasn't any deep-set, you know, uh, concern in that way. Everybody was very pleased when Don started uh, having his success. This was about, I guess, in the early 60s, 63, 64. Um, And then um, there just wasn't a lot of sort of... uh, There were a lot of jokes about it. My brother Steve, who was younger, uh, I remember on one occasion Don had come back to to Houston for some reason and uh, (laughs) he wanted an ashtray. There were no ashtrays, for example, in the house for some reason. I don't remember why. So he went to the store and he he got an ashtray and we were all sitting around the dining table and he said, uh, uh, said to Steve, he said, uh, "You know, have, have you seen my new ashtray?" And Steve said, Steve said, well, I don't know. Was it in the New Yorker?' <laughs> 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 so there was that that kind of thing. But uh, jibes, yes, but not, nothing more than that. Now,
1: um, and did it did it make it any more difficult for you? I mean, I've got to imagine, like coming up behind somebody who's publishing in the New Yorker, like that sets the bar pretty high."
2: Yeah, it was it was uh, it was awful in that regard. I mean, it, the problem was, of course, that he had such a, uh, an enormous and and attractive success that there was uh, a limit to what you could do. You had to get outside of what he did, and it took me a very long time to figure out how to get outside of what he did.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, is there is there a pressure? Um you know, when your brother is is having that kind of publishing success and is, um, I, I think aesthetically and stylistically so notable. You know, is there a pressure to sort of follow in those footsteps or to go in the opposite direction? Like, how do you find your own thing?
2: Well, the thing the, the thing you have to understand is that that sensibility that he brought to the writing at that point was basically a family sensibility. That's what I'm with, with all of the foregoing. Uh, wants to suggest. It was basically what we did all the time in the family. He was particularly good at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, uh, of course, he figured out a way to turn it into a, a, a new form of fiction. But, um, it was, it was the, the family sensibility so that it was, uh, you know, it fell naturally to all the rest of us. Uh, and so when we started, when I started writing or when Steve started writing fiction, um, you know, what we did was essentially the same sort of thing, uh, or at least in the in the sort of ballpark, uh, uh, that Don was working in. And I used to send work to Roger Angel at The New Yorker, who, uh, you know, has remarked uh, publicly, I think, that he got work for me, and it was just like Don's, and he couldn't buy it because he already had one of those. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was some years later after I had uh, sort of, gone through all that. Th- I was mostly a, a painter as a, as a, as a younger per- person. I was a visual artist and a conceptual artist and so on. I got to writing later after I lived in New York a while and, and, uh, and had done some books that were sort of, um, the first two books I did were kind of, you know, sort of halfway between the art world, uh, and, uh, literary world.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. So you you you're in Houston and uh you know you go you get through Catholic school, you survive and then you you said it earlier that you escaped. So escaped to what? Tulane? Lane? No, I
2: escaped the the uh... <laughs> <laughs> the Catholic Church, uh, basically, and you know, it changed the way you looked at things. And and I, but this was this became very soon after that was the the '60s, and you know, the whole world of that. And we were in a, we had of course a band, and the band was quite successful as a, you know, you're ta- crazy. You're talking about Red Crayola. Yeah, it's, uh, it was known as a sort of psychedelic. Band, but it wasn't really so much psychedelic as it was sort of influenced by Cage and and all the art music people of that sort. Um, and so we sort of combined that with rock and roll and and uh, made a couple of records, uh, which, are, you know, which are still out there. <laughs> you can Google them and and, and
1: um, so was this post college that you were in Red Crail? or was there like what what what? How did it all go timeline wise?
2: Uh, I went off to Tulane for a year. Then I went to the University of Houston uh, Architecture School for three years. And it was about at the end of that stint that we had the band and and the 60s came in. And, you know, the whole thing went out the window. I got kicked out of school uh, once and then got back in and then got kicked out again. Uh, So I never took an undergraduate degree.
1: Why did you get kicked out? Did you have uh, bad grades? uh,
2: No, I well, yes. In the architecture school, the, the the story is that the guy wanted us to design a um, parking garage. This was just after Paul Rudolph had done the parking garage at Yale that everybody was talking about in the architectural world. And, you know, my father thought this was stupid, and I, following my father, thought it was stupid, too. So I did a multimedia presentation instead of designing a parking garage. Uh, where I put the professor in the middle of the room and shot him with you know six six uh, vi- audio tapes, four you know, videotapes, and slide projectors, and shot them all across him and trying to suggest him that you know, the, the, his idea was dumb and that here was some interesting stuff, <laughs> and he didn't think it was interesting, and that was it. <laughs> Yeah, I was kicked out of the architectural school after that and then I went into the art school and somewhat the same thing happened. I I did an art book uh, for for a special problems course uh which I and I was a painter by this time working as a painter exhibiting as a painter in Houston and um I did this book which consisted of xeroxing all these articles out of the art magazines because that's where I got my real art education from reading art magazines. And at that time, they were very um, uh, fancy and, and heavy and difficult to read, and uh, deeply committed to what they were uh, writing about. Uh, and so I, you know, did a book by xeroxing all you know four hundred pages of art magazine articles suggesting to him that the selection of same was the uh, equivalent to, you know, research and so forth and so on. Uh, and the professor in that case did not agree and, and kicked me out of the art school.
1: <laughs> this is a this is a promising beginning for someone who wound up working that's, in academia.
2: That's what I that's what I thought.
1: <laughs> so okay, let's talk about the 1960s because uh, you know, obviously it's a decade that uh, a, a lot of people uh, are fascinated with I'm fascinated with it. I, I was born after the 60s, but grew up sort of uh, enculturated with everything that happened then even more so than my than my folks who went through it, which I always found curious. but uh, like what was it like? It sounds like you were actually in it. whereas my folks um, who are from Louisiana uh, they, they feel like they missed it uh, at least the popular notion of it. and uh, I think that's actually the case for the majority of people in America. There were only a select few. Who were actually in the thing as it was happening, and then I think it kind of like rippled out to the rest of the culture in the years and decades to follow. Is that an accurate assessment?
2: I, I wouldn't wouldn't hazard a, uh, a description uh, like that. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, I was uh, we were in it. The people I was hanging out with in Houston uh, in in the, in the mid '60s. In this band, we played around. We had groups of followers, and some guy came in from the West Coast and then took us out to play in California and uh, Berkeley, and then at the Berkeley Folk Festival on, on one occasion with, uh, I don't remember Steve Miller was there, I think, uh, Richie Havens, uh, Country Joe and the Fish, those people. Sure. Uh, and we were doing this screeching, snap, and Crazy music, which, you know, everybody out there, you know, was into into something quite different, which was, you know, deeply emotional, warm and fuzzy rock and roll. So we were not well received uh, in that in that venue. And uh, but we did a, actually did a record with uh, the, the guitarist John Fahey, who uh, was we were staying with a guy named uh, Ed Denson, who was Fahey's uh, agent or something. Uh, and Fahey liked what we were doing, so we made a record with him, which I don't think has yet been released because there was some tie-up with uh, the record companies.
1: So, and was was this? I mean, this is the '60s. So, were there psychedelics involved? Were you influenced by that oh, experience? Sure. I
2: mean, everybody was. You were doing all kinds of, you know, I mean, not not drugs that are hard in the way drugs are hard now, but you know, LSD and so and so. All the time we eat all the time
1: was it was it impactful i mean in the, like when you look back because uh I have some confusion over this, like when you look back on those experiences, uh, do you think they were formative in terms of your approach to art and did it carry through into later years and later works where you, you know you weren't necessarily like uh, involved in in that scene
2: no i don't I, I think they were uh, interesting uh, sidelight and and you had a sense that they enriched the world in a way that you hadn't seen the world enriched previously uh after a time they became less fascinating to me and to others uh and so you know uh, eventually uh, i gave up drugs altogether and alcohol i was also a big drinker in those days and i alcohol was very dangerous because i would drink until i passed out and uh, when i especially when I, I guess when I quit when I moved to New York and the first party I went to I ended up. <laughs> somewhere on the Bowery asleep at 4 a.m., you know, on the street. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was like, wait a minute now. In, the Houston, in Houston, this was fine because I would end up, you know, in my underwear on the steps of the museum asleep, <laughs> which was fine. You know, in Houston, you know, you could go, oh, I was in the, you know, I'm on, I'm on the steps of the museum. I can get home from here. And nobody's going to hurt me in New York. like <laughs> I'm about to get my, you know. Bowels extruded.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say the Bowery back in the day was not the safest neighborhood, right? <laughs> no,
2: not at all. So, I mean, I gave up alcohol and, and about the same time, mostly uh, uh, all the other drugs.
1: So, what was it a uh, like? Did you have to? Did you just quit cold turkey, or did you have to go into? Uh,
2: like- no, no, I, I just quit. Yeah. I've actually I've not had that a, a difficult problem with the quitting of uh, various addictive. I mean, I, I quit cigarettes cold turkey in nineteen something after my both of my brothers got cancer of the throat, and actually in the same month of the same year. And, uh, uh,
1: and this was Donald and uh, Pete Peter. He, yeah. Uh, and you know that
2: that was enough to suggest maybe smoking wasn't such a good idea. So, <laughs> right. so I gave it up. It took about you know four or five months to give it up whole, but uh, it, uh, I haven't smoked since then.
1: If you so, if, if that's not going to do it for you, then nothing will.
0: Let's just be yeah, honest.
2: <laughs> that, that was that was my thinking. Uh, it, it, in Don's case, of course, it went on to to uh, metastasize into uh, liver cancer and. And he died as a consequence. Uh, Pete did not die until, you know, 25 years, 30 years later.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, like I I, uh, smoked like briefly in my earlier years and I still worry about it. Like I wasn't even a heavy smoker, but I'm like, uh, you know, not a good idea.
2: No, I don't think it is, and it's it's quite extraordinary as you drive around in the world these days to see people in their shut cars yes. <laughs> you know,
1: surrounded by smoke <laughs> and you're like, excuse me yeah. <laughs> what are you doing and I, you know I feel like too, you know like the that the sixties uh, you know growing up in the middle part of the twentieth uh, century it was a different world back then, you know people that you could still smoke I mean I remember when I was a kid. Uh, as a young kid, you could still smoke on airplanes, which today se- seems like the most insane thing ever.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was a different world, uh, much sweeter and kinder than the world we live in today. You think so? Oh yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, if you you couldn't do you couldn't do all that '60s crap today, <laughs> nobody let you get away with it.
1: Yeah. So it's getting worse, in your opinion?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, it's coarse. The world is, you know, four times as coarse as it was then. And it, then it, I think of my parents in this way because for for them it was must have been very coarse uh, when we came up. And the whole progression is, you know, <laughs> you know all hell coarseness.
1: Yeah, man, it makes me. Where I have a young, I have a young child, so I'm thinking like. What's it going to be like 20 years from now? <laughs> it's just, and is there, do you think there's any way to right the ship or is this just the way things go for civilizations and for our species?
2: You know, that's a huge kind of generalization I wouldn't want to make, but it does seem that there's a tendency for things to get coarser just year by year, decade by decade. It just, you know, and just generally things are coarser, you
1: Yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe. And the, the thing, too, is just the access to information and the constant news feed of it just feels like constant bad news feed on my computer screen. I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's just uh, maybe it'd be better to, you know, ignorance is bliss to, to turn it off and to not have as, as much awareness. But it's hard to escape.
2: Well, it's I think people are crueler, and you know, on and on. Uh, and I think that's part of the, you know, the people who are needing to take advantage of other people to get what they want are needing it more and you know more willing to um do whatever it takes to get what they want
1: so to go back to your uh you know your bio and uh the 60s you know at some point the 60s end um like what about vietnam did that touch your life
2: yes i was you know desperate to stay out of vietnam and (laughs) and did everything possible to do so and eventually um uh i had i was drafted and i had to go uh you know whatever you do when you get drafted and then i was listed as one Y, uh which is you know not suitable for military service or probably not No, i think that's sort of probably not sir
1: you it's, should have, you should have you should have just given them one of your red crayola albums and been like
2: well, <laughs> we, we, we tried that uh no uh, the, the, the the my one of my great you know, disappointments of the period was that Mayo Thompson, my co-conspirator in the band, got to be four F, and I only got to be one Y.
1: <laughs> what does four F mean?
2: Four is you can't never go anywhere near the military. <laughs> you know, stay out of town. You're, you're you yeah. Know, dead man walking.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, this is just a, you know maybe a, a little bit of a counterpoint to the things are getting coarser. I mean, the, I think the notion of a uh, military draft to young people today is something they could hardly imagine. But that that's heavy man when you could be drafted at any moment you know no matter what your position and next thing you know you're in in a war theater that's
2: yeah it was frightening and you know in hindsight you, know, you have a whole different view of it after you know all these years but at the time it was you know simply a, a, a get out at all uh, costs and you know ended up going to a psychiatrist who said I was uh, not fit
1: that's what you did. Okay. Yeah, because people have different, different ways.
2: Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people left and went to Canada. Some people shot themselves in the foot. Some people just went to psychiatrists. Is, it seems between going to Canada, shooting yourself in the foot, and going to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist was right around the corner.
1: <laughs> right? And, right. Was, and was unarmed. It was a, <laughs> indeed the best choice possible. So, okay, so then uh, visual art. You know, you, you finish your musical career. Uh, I'm imagining that just sort of uh, de- fizzled or dematerialized kind of in a natural way, or was there some sort of big breakup? Or? No,
2: actually what happened was that, first of all, the, the, I was painting before I was doing the music, and then all during the same time. Um, the band worked for, did a first album. The album, as you know, has a certain kind of, success, uh, there was the second album which we did, which the band, which the record company refused to uh, r- 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 release because they thought it was too unreleasable. And um, at that time, coincided with when I was freed from the threat of the army and I just moved to New York. And Mayo stayed in in Texas for a while and continued with the band. And I sort of left the band went to New York started making you know, started getting involved with the art world there I worked at a gallery called um Corn Corn, Corn hmm Jill Cornbley Cornbley was her name Jill Cornbley Gallery she was a big friend of Leo Castelli and just around the corner from him the gallery was on 79th Street and um so I worked for her for a while and at the same time, I was running around and meeting people in the, what was called then the concept art business, uh, Joseph Kosuth and Larry Wiener and uh, Douglas Hubler and, and uh, some of those folks.
1: So what, what, what year was that? Uh,
2: that would be, I think, 1967.
1: Okay, so still late 60s. Yeah. And then, what kind of, like, what kind of painting and conceptual art did you produce yourself in that period?
2: Well, well, what I was doing was trying to eliminate the art object. There was something about the art object, the physical object that seemed to me problematic, uh, in the, you know, that it was just, it was just another object so that, uh, the, the, largely, um, resonant aspect of the fine art was lost because mostly it was just adoration of this certain object, a painting by such and such, a sculpture by such and such. And it was, you know, uh, so we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to avoid the object. Uh, I made pieces which consisted of, uh, putting tape on walls. Uh, sometimes you know, marking out certain spaces or just, you know, existing on the wall as a, as an adornment. Uh, I made piece papers, pieces of paper which printed things on them. And I remember one thing that I exhibited was, um, was called substitutions where I would print up a paper and say, um, instead of making art, I bought this television set or instead of making art, I went to the drugstore and did thus and so. So it just consisted of these, uh, na- sl- tiny narratives. Uh, so I did that kind of thing and uh, did did well. I had did a lot of exhibitions. Was in a show at the at the Modern. Was in a show at some other large uh, uh, museum in New York. And then Lucy Lapard, who was a critic, involved more or less in those areas. Uh, did some shows that were like done on. Uh, cards like uh, postcards and and then she wrote a couple of books and there were two or three books about conceptual art in which I made a small appearance so I was doing fine until I started to write a long piece for Art Forum about uh, Joseph Kosuth who was a pal and after about 50 pages I got you know terribly terribly bored and thought this wasn't very human so that's when I quit uh, doing concept
1: art. Okay, and then what about like uh, the literary stuff? Like, was that in the back of your mind? Were you doing any of that on the side? Um, was your your brother was publishing and publishing well at that point? So I imagine if you were in New York, like, was that all happening at the same time? Do I have my chronology yeah. right? Yeah.
2: yeah, he was. He lived down on Eleventh uh, Street. I was living up on Madison between uh, uh, eighty and eighty-one, and. Um, you know, we were very close friends. That was a great period for me, because uh, you know, I mean, it was the f- first time as an adult I had spent a lot of time with him, and of course, that was that was quite wonderful. Uh, we were together all the time, going around, seeing things, doing things. When I first got there, of course, he showed me around New York. He'd only been there a couple of years, but he uh, he'd, he'd um, you know, we hung out there, and then. Uh, he, there was a, Actually, what happened is, I now remember, is that uh, some people who were starting a small uh, press in New York wanted to do a magazine, I mean, wanted to do a book that was printed on uh, single pages and not bound. And they asked him to do it. And he said, no, but my brother is interested. And they asked me to do it, and I was interested, so I did it. And that was Rangoon. Uh, which eventually, you know, I talked them out of doing the other, the Unbound and so on and so forth.
1: Um, And that was what launched you as a writer? Well, yeah, but
2: those the first two books, Rangoon and War and War, were both sort of semi-art projects in the form of books. I started thinking that, you know, in terms of, an object to carry information. The book was of of an art type information that a book was the perfect form. And so those books are really about more about, you know, visual art and concept art and that sort of thing. than they were about literary art. Um, But it
1: it sounds like they got you thinking about uh, (laughs) making your own literary art. Yeah, it
2: was a, it was some sort of uh, moment where I, Started doing this other thing, which I really wasn't very, you know, well equipped to do at the time, and it it then, as you perhaps have noted, (laughs) took ten years of woodshedding to, uh, you know, get get the chops up to the point where they were, uh, you know, the work was publishable.
1: And okay, and so now, uh, what is this? Uh, Like, there must be uh, some mistake. Is what your fifteenth? Is that right? Do I have the number right? The fifteenth book. Uh book of fiction. You've published many, let's put it that yeah, way.
2: Yeah, it's about that.
1: So does it get any easier?
2: Uh yeah, sure. Uh it's different as at this point than it was. Um, the what really happened was I spent ten years, as I say, from seventy to eighty, uh starting to write literary work, uh writing stories and so forth, and I published a few back then. Uh, In in the late uh, 70s, I went to Hopkins and studied with Jack Barth uh, at at the writing seminars, and that was very helpful.
1: What was he like as a teacher?
2: He was was absolutely wonderful. He was soft-spoken, didn't say a lot. What he said mattered. Um, He was very uh, oriented toward uh, drama and dramaturgy, as he called it, and so he would point out how your work, you know, while interesting line by line, uh, you know, lacked something in in the way of story. Um, the idea was that he he was a, uh, a a sort of tonic for having studied effectively studied with Don. Don was all about the sentence, um, you know, the, the individual words, this word, that word, that X word. How do you do this? What do you say? Uh, and Jack was more about story. So he would, you know, uh, assume a certain felicity in the writing, but he would also want to ask about story. And those were two different kinds of
1: um so you mean plot, Instruction. When, when you say plot, you mean like the, the plot, the architecture, because I find like in literary writing, I mean, I guess it's kind of a, a generalization, but there can be a resistance to plot, uh, and like, you know, maybe a hyper attention to, uh, you know, the line by line word choice or to character or to the interior lives of characters or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of times that's the big hang-up for the literary writers. And I think maybe the flip is true for people who write genre fiction. But did you have – did you feel like having, um, you know, hung out with your brother and kind of been influenced by him and then you get to to studying with John Barth? Like, is that what he did for you? He helped you understand, like, how to build a plot, for lack of a well,
2: better way? I, I, would say, I would say he certainly drew your attention to the uh, – uh, attractiveness of various kinds of plotting techniques. Yes, it's not. I mean, to say it's about story or to say it's about plot is is something. Uh, it's a sort of a diminutive of what he was doing. He was more interested in, for example, the notion of um, restraint or uh, something like that as it as it bears on the characters and their, their interactions with each other and the development of those interactions and the uh, experiences uh, between those characters. So it's not quite... You have to understand that the work before that really was about... It, it was almost abstract in the sense that it was about the lines. So you write the line and you write the next line. You're not particularly interested in... You know, the story of the lines, of the characters of the lines, you're interested in how beautiful the line is, uh, how the language plays, what what the musical component of the line is, what the surprise component in the line might be, what word appears that might seem strange and, and almost musical in, in its sudden appearance in this life. All of those kinds of things. And Jack was about all of that, but on a that was sort of secondary or he, he, he responded to all that, but at the same time he was interested in this other thing which is which is a little more character and story oriented. And in fact it was very important for me because uh, eventually, uh I I remember and I've written this somewhere about, you know, years later I was riding around in a car somewhere and, and thought, you know, like people are more interesting than words, which was a kind of simple-minded formulation, uh, which was news to me <laughs> at the time.
1: Well, I, I think I can, I think I agree with that, right? I, I, you can agree or not agree. I don't know whether. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I'm doing this show. I think I find people interesting. Okay. Um, so, okay, so you get out of Johns Hopkins and you have your uh, degree. Yeah, and then it's off to teach.
2: Yeah, I I had a bunch of interviews and and I was still sort of a <laughs> haughty soul at the time, so uh, I swaggered through seven interviews and got not one offer, and uh, then I got an offer at uh, Southern Miss, and so
1: I went to work. And then thirty years later, yeah. Okay, so what was it like? Uh, I mean, you 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 were there. You you ran the Mississippi Review for years, which was one of Uh, the country's uh, you know premier literary journals and you know that whole scene has changed so much with the advent of digital Mm -hmm. Um, but what was it like back in the heyday you know when like people were mailing in uh, submissions and all that kind of stuff you know
2: Well, I was, you know, I mean, I had paid attention to the literary magazine community before that, and I was interested in magazines, uh, lit magazines, and I would go to bookstores and look at lit magazines and buy some uh, when I had the money to buy some. And, you know, it was something I was interested in. So so, um, when I got to uh, Southern Miss and got the magazine under my control, then I was interested in trying to do... Uh, interesting stuff with it, and and so that's what we did for the next thirty years. And probably it was interesting for the first twenty. After that, it became a little less interesting. Um,
1: but. You got a chance to publish a lot of uh, big names. You know, like at the time they weren't big names, but you were. Uh, you know, there kind of at the beginning for them.
2: Right. Uh, the, the, you were paying attention. I was paying attention to the literary culture at the time. I had a lot of heroes uh, among people of Don's and Jack's generation. Jack Hawks, for example, and Coover, and and people like that. And so we published them, and and then some uh, of the Latin Americans we published, and uh, then we found younger writers who were. Um, making waves. Uh, Ray Carver was around, uh, I think in, in uh. Did you, did you know him? Yeah, briefly. He came down to Southern. We had him down to Southern a couple times. And in fact, we had a, we had an arrangement he was going to come there and teach, um, which I think uh, it was just sort of tentative arrangement. And, uh, this I think was before he hit quite completely and later was less interested in coming there to teach. But, um, he, he came down, I think, twice, and he was a great uh, reader and a wonderful guy, just a lovely guy.
1: Yeah. Was this and was this like was this after he had gotten sober or was he still drinking when he came down?
2: No, he was pretty sober when I saw when I knew. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, because like you hear, I read the uh, bio. I mean, it's kind of a harrowing bio, but it was definitely seemed like a, a bifurcation in his life. You know, like the period before and the period after.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it, it may have been, uh, though I wonder if it wasn't dramatized for, yeah. <laughs> for the for the bio.
1: Right, right, right. So, okay, so, uh, you know, you're there, you're teaching. Did you find the teaching uh, fed your writing? I think, like, you know, people who teach and write uh, seem to be one of two ways. Either they really love the teaching and they feel like it's something that has, like, a a very positive effect on their work because of the interaction with students. And then I think there are writers who teach because it's a steady paycheck and it keeps them afloat. But if they, uh, if they didn't have to do it, they wouldn't, um, was, no, where did you I was, fall?
2: I was sort of more the former than the latter. I, I enjoyed it. I loved the students. Uh, the students were constantly interesting and, and charming and, you know, amazing. You could, you know, you could make fun of them and they would, take it and you could make fun with them and they would enjoy it and you know they were all writing and trying their best to find something interesting and very often they would find something interesting and uh so I was I was excited by that uh, I'm not sure how much it fed the writing in any direct way except that you know I was comfortable doing it and I liked doing it um I was not unhappy doing it at all.
1: Well, I think, but I think too, like it's nice to be around, uh, young writers who aren't necessarily jaded and who have a lot of energy and hope. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. There's something sort of nourishing about that to be around yeah. people who have that kind of energy. Cause it's really hard to to replicate it, uh, outside of the context of being, you know, in your early twenties or something. At least that's been the case for me
2: well we had a i think it's a it's a situation where anytime you have a community that's uh built up around a, a that kind of a deal they they're all invested in the in the project and we had people that were uh right right out of school and people who were mid thirties and up to forties and so forth and bringing all those people together and into a workshop and the whole form of the workshop I always enjoyed being in uh it's a kind of wonderful uh classroom atmosphere setting m- much better than, you know, any I, you know, I mean, other than the ones that Hopkins, um, had been in. when I was in college, uh, college was a wretched
1: dump for me. So <laughs> were you, uh, were you tough in workshop? Like what was your, what was your approach? I, I was,
2: uh, I, I imagined myself to be playfully tough, <laughs>
1: So, meaning like you didn't, you you chose your words carefully, but you didn't. They said
2: they said I was tougher than I remember myself being. Okay, and I I horsed around a lot. I enjoyed horsing around, so I would walk around on the desks and you know, and (laughs) yell at the guy with the uh, who had the um, you know earphones in and so forth.
1: Okay. So, and then uh, I want to talk about your process, you know, we could, like the, the process of uh, how you do the work, because I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is something you've done your whole career, or if this is something that you've uh, started doing later, but it says that you dictate a lot of your work and then transcribe. So you'll, you'll talk into a voice recorder of some so- some sort and then transcribe it. Is that true?
2: I used to do that.
1: Okay. So you don't, I
2: don't, I don't do that anymore. I did that. Uh, the first couple of books I wrote, um, in conventional fashion uh, after that starting with uh, uh, what I forget what the name of that book was Two Against One starting with Two Against One I dictated the whole book uh, and it was transcribed and then I edited and I did that then for uh, probably most of the books up until the last two or three
1: okay so why what What was the it just seemed like a good idea seemed like uh, maybe there would be a lot of like, a, like, were you trying to capture something in the language that you couldn't do in, uh, in you know, in sitting to write down your, your words in a more traditional way? Did you feel like you were trying to, um, s- stay away from that and instead try to capture the energy of spoken word or,
2: uh, it's sort of like that. I felt that it was faster, faster. I, so that as fast as I could go in my head, I could go on the tape recorder. Yeah, and uh, I was not. I mean, a, a good friend of mine, Lisa Zeidner, who I knew in college, was a you know, one hundred and ten words a minute typist, and you know, so she didn't have any problem having her typing keep up with her thinking, and I had a problem that way.
1: How fast? How fast do you type? You? Oh,
2: I don't know, fifty or sixty. And, okay. You know, uh, I do. You know, I yeah. At, at best, absolute best. Um, so. I started that uh, with Two Against One, and then I liked the... What I was trying to do with Two Against One was make something that was looser than the previous books. Um, the previous three books, I think there were three, were um, very, very tight, uh, very heavily edited, trimmed. And I was trying to uh, loosen that up, and that was one of the reasons. And the other was this, as I say, the it could move faster. And then I began to be interested in the way that voice sounded. And, um, so that's what I did for a bunch of books.
1: Okay. So what does that look like? I mean, we, we sort of know what a, uh, what a, a typical writing session looks like with like somebody sitting in front, like hunched over in front of a computer or a typewriter, um, you know, typing, sitting there, <laughs> typing, hitting delete, you know, we know what that whole, uh, torturous ritual looks like. But when you're talking into a, a a voice recorder of some sort? Like, are you pacing around? Are you walking the neighborhood? Or you like, what did you do? Was there, or was there a one way that you did it?
2: There wasn't just one way to do it. Uh, Two against one was basically dictated sitting in the bed. The later books were dictated, uh, you know, elsewhere in the house or walking around or outside or in the car, uh, driving around. Uh, The process is fairly similar, except that you don't do so much Word editing, you do phrase editing so that if you do a phrase once and you don't quite like it, you quickly zip back, you know, a little bit and repeat the phrase. Or you do it, uh, or you just say, you know, replace previous and then say the new phrase. Um, You know, but, but ends of things, I mean, like some book was ended. I wrote the end of it sitting in a car in a parking lot of a Chevrolet dealership. In Hattiesburg where a car went by with uh, you know how it was it was the beginning of the low rider type and they had lights underneath them and it was in the rain and some some guy drove by with one of these with purple light
1: underneath his car
2: and it right. just just sent me to heaven. So so I made it to the ending of the
1: book. The ground ground effects. Isn't that what they call that? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, but like on the, the latest book and like the last couple of books, you've, you've moved away from, uh, dictation and back into like a more traditional form of composition. So what, what prompted that? Did you just want to try it the old way just to kind of mix it up or did you have a, Um,
2: I don't really know what prompted it. I started doing it, uh, started typing stuff and I have always have a lot of, you know, bits and pieces, uh, on the computer, and, and then you start sort of lacing them together and re, uh, reorganizing, rebranding them f- to fit the new world that you're imagining. And uh, it just sort of came to me that it was comfortable to do again. So I started doing it that way.
1: Okay. And so, with uh, there must be some mistake, um, you know, how long did it take you to write it? And like, what do you have like a, a set schedule? Um, you write, like, I think you're a night writer, correct?
2: Usually, yeah. uh, it uh, it took a long time because parts of it are very old, like years old, and parts of it are brand new. Most of it is brand new, um, but but a lot of stuff is uh, reused from previous uh, efforts of various kinds. Uh, some promotional. Uh, not promotional, prom- uh, proposals for books, which uh, never went anywhere, kind of got reformulated uh, to fit into this book, and um, mostly written on a, a MacBook Air, one of the tiny MacBook Airs. Right. Um, and,
1: you know, as you say, I'm up all night, so I tend to write at night. So um, with this book, I mean, like at at this stage of your life, like, do you feel um, as much enthusiasm for making books as you always have? Like, is it something you plan on continuing to do? Like, do you see it? Like, I think, you know, some people take the approach that they're going to just write until the end and other people think like, you know, I'm going to. I'm gonna do one more and kind of set my own. uh, Wait a minute.
2: Let me just check how far the end is away.
1: (laughs) No, but I mean, you know, some people like to, like uh, Philip Roth. You know, like he sort of said, "I'm done." He retired. Yeah. And uh, other people don't ever do that. They just kind of keep working until they don't. Uh, No,
2: actually, I thought I thought I was done uh, before this book, and then I started putting this book together, and then uh, it sort of came together, and I, I was enjoying doing it, and. Um, so I think, you know, it's possible that I'll do another book, but, you know, who knows? I don't really, uh, there's not a big, I'm not a big scheduler, uh, nor am I a big planner, so I don't know, you know, what, what's to happen next. I may do something, I may not. I, I I stopped writing stories like 30 years ago or something right at the end of the uh, 80s or the early 90s, uh,
1: you might 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 want to try that again. You're saying.
2: Well, I think about it, yeah. But the problem is that I, you know, I had this relationship uh, with uh, Veronica Gang at the New Yorker, and she was the most wonderful editor that anybody could ever have, and uh, of stories and 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 of longer work actually. And I miss her sort of terrible. She died some years ago, many years ago. Um. But it sort of soured me on other editors. I don't really, you know, want to send work out to people too much. And uh,
1: what made her so great? Uh,
2: she was she, she 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 first of all she 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 got everything that you you know were putting into a work, and that was completely new for me. Where she would get every nuance of the of the. You know, every joke, every mm, odd word choice, every single thing you were doing that you thought was interesting, she would get. And it it was just impossible to imagine that there was somebody on the planet who would get that much. I mean, you know, a lot of people get a lot of it. Uh, Some people get none of it. But nobody gets all of it. And she got all of it. And it was just like, so we would just, we spent a lot of time on the phone. Uh, talking over, arguing about stories <laughs> that I had written, and you know, fighting about them and and revising them, and, and she was just she was just insanely good at at the business of uh, editing. And uh, she you know she worked for lots of I mean She worked for lots of uh, much more famous people than me. So I guess they knew that too. <laughs>
1: That's got to be – I mean, you know, that's – talk about a job where you better bring it, you know, especially if you're working with with the writers who are good enough to publish in The New Yorker. Like, if you're going to uh, purport to edit those people, <laughs> you better know what you're talking about, you know? Yeah,
2: I and and I've had – you know, I mean, I had other editors there who were good. Chip, uh, Chip McGrath, after Veronica's was gone from The New Yorker, she was uh, ousted, essentially, at the end of the Sean era. Um Chip McGrath was still there, and he was, he was pretty good. Uh, there was some, I had another editor there who shall remain nameless, who wasn't good at all, uh, and, but who is very famous. (laughs) (laughs) But he just, it was a question of being good at the particular thing that I was interested in. I think that was it. You know, there's a sensibility, and if you, if you're not, if you're not tuned into the sensibility, then, you know, you you don't get it and 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 I think this works the other way around if I'm not tuned into a sensibility I don't get it do you know what I mean sure so so there are a lot of writers whose work um you know I don't read don't care for particularly just because it's a different kind of sensibility and it's not uh, something I'm interested in
1: yeah, you know that's an interesting point because you know you have your readers. You know, as the writers, we all have our readers, and they're the, the, you, you sort of pray for those people who get what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And some writers, you know, their whatever freq- frequency they're sending out registers with a lot of people. Some writers who are very, very good might have a much smaller audience. But what's interesting from an editorial perspective is being somebody who, you know, in Veronica's case, like she got you mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm imagining she got a lot of people. Like she had the ability to sort of exactly. read empathically and understand the writers who were coming at her. Like I almost wish she was here so I could ask her. Like, was there anybody who you just couldn't get? <laughs> you know,
2: I think there was, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, presume to tell you who. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but she worked for you know the guy that does uh, Prairie Home Companion. That guy. What's
1: that guy's name? Oh, Garrison Keeler?
2: yeah she worked on his work. He would always call her to you know work on his books, and uh, uh, William Trevor, she worked on William Trevor's work, uh, which is you know as far removed as you could get from mine. Uh, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you know William Trevor:
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm familiar with him yeah so she worked
2: and she worked on a lot of very fancy people uh-huh. um, so i you know it was it's just like she was such a big loss to the literary community and and you know i i um miss her still
1: wow and like you know in terms of publishing at the New yorker because i am I'm imagining like a a great many of my listeners uh, would like to do that. it seems like an impossible fortress to um Uh, You know, get get inside of like, how do you even do that? I mean, obviously, uh, your brother had published there and you had some sort of in living in New York or like, you know, but today, what people just submit their agents might know somebody. I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, in my case, uh, actually, I had an impediment. My brother was more an impediment than a uh, advantage because. Uh, as I told you, as I mentioned earlier, Roger was who I sent to for the for years and uh he would just say, "You know, you know no thank you and you know, the the point was he he had a reason to do that and and the, what happened was that once he was out of town, and Veronica was reading for him at that time, and so she read a story of mine and said, and wrote me of just a gorgeous uh, uh handwritten uh uh... rejection letter the only rejection letter i ever got that sounded as i've said elsewhere most more like an invitation than a rejection <laughs> right and uh... you know that's how that st- I started working with her after that and and that's how that worked out but i mean i had sent there for years with you know no no uh... joy uh... i think they're still they're still pretty much the same i, I don't actually uh, send work there or talk to them or know anybody there anymore um... The people I knew were all right there. You know, when she was there, and and Sean was there, and McGrath was there, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Rogers actually still there in some capacity. But yeah, I, I want to say
1: I've seen McGrath's byline, am I right? Am I right? right? It, it,
2: uh, he's around. I don't know. He used to. He left the New Yorker and went to be the editor of the New York Times Book Review. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what Chip is doing now. I haven't talked to him in years. Uh, and then I think isn't uh, Hedrick Hertzberg still the editor
1: of the New Yorker? Yeah, I mean, he writes political columns. I mean, right. He
2: he was he was a close friend of Veronica's. Ah, okay. Uh, and at the time, wasn't in the New York. Was in Washington D.C. doing political stuff, and uh, came back. Uh, I think after she died, sometime. And uh, but I think it's. I think uh, it's still you know pretty much the same. You send the work in. If they're interested, they'll they'll. Uh, uh, you know, take a look. They, they're very—they were at least at that time—very good readers, and and uh, but you know they're inundated with work, and and so they you know as 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 even I know from running a lit magazine, you don't spend uh, you know a lifetime with each story that comes in. You read it until you know you're not going to publish it. Right. Uh, and then – and although Veronica would tell, tell me, you know, after she f- decided she wasn't going to publish it, then she had to read elsewhere to be sure she was right <laughs> in the same story. So uh, and sometimes you do that.
1: So let's uh, – like a, just as a, a good way to close, speaking of literary magazines and you, you obviously have um, a long history of working in that realm and now you're uh, – are you editing the New World writing, the online –
2: yeah, we we I stole that, you know, that's a famous uh, uh, 50s uh, literary journal called New World Writing, and it's been out of print for some years and so forth. So I, you know, was bumbling around trying to find a decent name for a magazine, and I decided to use that. I'm not so sure that was a good idea now, but that's what I've been using for a couple of years.
1: So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Publishing online.
2: Right, and I've been doing that. Uh, actually, I started that. Started a magazine online in 1995, which was an offshoot of the Mississippi Review, which I was editing then, but it was wholly sort of private. It wasn't part of my job at the university, and I did that until 2010 when I started this magazine, and uh, we publish uh, quarterly. We uh, try to find interesting work and publish it. Uh, We don't do a lot of solicitation. Uh, We take a lot of stuff over the counter uh over the transom I guess that's more correct uh the other thing is that I've, I used to in the later days of my Mississippi Review work I would assign editors for specific issues just in order to, to cut the load for myself and you know give other people a chance to you know select some work you'd like and and so i do that i'm doing that starting to do that now like we have an issue coming up that's done by uh, a woman who was a student of mine years ago pia earhart who published a book called the uh, famous fathers i think called uh she was a very good student she lives in new york and new orleans and uh
1: I know, I know Pia. I want to say I know her. I published her at the, at the Nervous Breakdown.
2: Probably, yeah. She's, 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 she's quite good. And so she's doing the sort of the fall issue of the magazine, and I don't know what I'm going to do for the winter issue. We tend to publish, um, I don't know stuff that I like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes that makes sense as it is your uh, your official magazine. So, uh, great talking with you. I'm so, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you here, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, congratulations on there must be some mistake. Uh, I wish you uh, success with it and uh, success with whatever comes next.
2: Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Okay, there we go. That's Frederick Barthelme. Uh, Such fun talking with him His book, his novel is called There Must Be Some Mistake It's available now from Little Brown You can find him online His website is frederickbarthelme.com He's also on Twitter Follow him on Twitter His handle is at fbarthelme Thank you to Kill Rockstars as usual For all the great music Be sure to check out killrockstars.com Don't forget that this podcast has its own free app The app is free It's available uh, at the... the, um, app store for your iphone it's available at the uh, amazon marketplace for your android device whatever device you have get the app it's free it's the best way to listen you get the uh, app onto your device and then the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast will be there waiting for you for free 50 episodes free and then if you want to stream the deep archives you sign up for premium it's very cheap and uh you can support the show which i would appreciate you want to email me uh the address is letters at other you can uh harass me about food stuff <laughs> you know it's tough people have their reasons and people emotionally you know they need bacon emotionally i sort of get that on a human level But it should also be said, you don't necessarily have to quit cold turkey, no pun intended, unless you want to. Could just reduce. And uh, the other thing, too, uh, with regard to David, the gentleman who wrote to me, uh, despairing of the circumstances uh, on the ground currently, there's nothing wrong with being out ahead of the curve. Things can change. Like, look at the uh, public opinion on cigarettes. Look what happened with gay marriage, what continues to happen. Things can change. See, there's my idealism. There it is. It's coming around, at the end of the show. My idealism is a uh, is, is 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 overtaking my uh, deep apathy. Maybe I'll go vote at the eleventh hour. Maybe I'll run to the polling station. Maybe I won't. Please remember that Baudelaire died after being paralyzed and deprived of, uh, deprived of speech by syphilis, and that Plato died. While attending a wedding Uh, That is it for today I'm all out of uh, things to say Thank you to, oh actually I'm not Thank you to Frederick Barthelme One more time Uh, Go get his novel And thanks to you guys for listening For tuning in uh, to this program Week after week, episode after episode I appreciate that Thank you for sharing the, uh, the word On social media, that helps Thank you for, uh, rating and reviewing the program on iTunes. That helps. Let me tell you about all the ways you can help me. (laughs) Um, so yeah, what am I going to do? Rest of my day. Put this thing up. Get it ready. Stage it. And, uh, go to bed. I do need to go to bed. I haven't, uh... I haven't been feeling great. I have a cold. I can't really hear it, though. It's a weird cold. It's sort of lurking there. You ever have one of those colds that just lurks there? Alright. So, I think that's the program. <laughs> I always feel like sticking around to the end of this song. Always. I feel like that's what I'm supposed to... Whenever I use this song for the close, I feel like I should sort of hang out and let the song finish as a courtesy, even though it's totally discourteous to talk over a song. I'm conflicted. Do you understand that? I don't know what I'm doing. I lack moral clarity. I exist in the gray area. Everything's relative. I'm confused. Where's George Carlin when you need him?